So I'd like to welcome you all to the, uh, the LSD. I'm Walter Denham. I'm a professor of macroeconomics here and uh, director of the Center for Macroeconomics, which is called Contrain today with us. Before I introduce the speaker, I want to make some administrative remarks. So our speakers will talk for roughly 15 minutes, and after that, it's up to you to ask questions. Uh, there is it's more than an event, so we have a hashtag in case you want to ask. Um, but please keep your uh, mobile on silent. Um, the event is recorded, and hopefully you make a forecast available soon. So let me uh, start with the more important part. So this evening we're very privileged that the uh, Richard Nesman, the Chief Operating Officer from uh, CIBC. Now, before joining CIBC, he has been in many top-managed positions at uh, prestigious firms in the investment security industry. Um, now, in addition to having built right, a very successful career in the financial world, he's also been involved in several not-for-profit organizations, like the Sixth Hospital in Toronto and the 2015 Penang. I think you've also been, or still are, on the advisory board of LSE. That's in, in North America. America. Yeah. Okay. And although I haven't been at LSE for that long, I'm still proud to mention that you also got an MSc from LSE and several other degrees. And you've also been teaching that several. That's not for you, by the way. No, I wonder. <laughs> okay, so Richard is uh, working for the CIBC. And the C is. Uh, and for Canada, but it clearly is also an international bank. And in particular, you are responsible for the wholesale banking and CIBC's international operations, among other duties that you have. But the Canadian aspect is also important because we're going to talk about the financial crisis. And Canada has been hit less by the financial crisis than other countries. And actually, I'm pretty sure that the UK government appointed the Canadian as the governor of the Bank of England because. Canada did do better than, say, the UK. And, um, and moreover, CIBC, I think, has done particularly well because by the Bloomberg magazine last year, you guys were the strongest in North America and Canada and the third strongest in the world. So right, yeah. I think we're going to learn a lot from this. So let's welcome our speaker. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. It's great to be here. I didn't know if anybody would show up, so I'm glad to see we got a good turnout. Um, and it's great to be back here at LSE. I get back once in a while, not every year, but once in a while. And uh, as uh, the professor uh, said, I did my Master's of Science in Accounting Advance. Uh, it was almost 30 years ago, so 1985, so a long time ago. It didn't look like this when I was here, by the way. It was much, much nicer now. Lots changed since that time. Uh, back in 85, you recall students used uh, typewriters instead of uh, personal computers to write their essays. Uh, cell phones, of course, didn't exist, so you probably can't really understand how the world operated, uh, given the pervasiveness of cell phones now. Um, and, uh, and, of course, I have a lot more gray hair than I had back then. But a lot stays the same. The LC continues to pursue uh, and achieve academic excellence. And it continues to challenge students and encourage them to think independently. 
Uh, and so this approach, I think, has really helped me over my uh, career in the capital markets. You know, it really comes uh, it, it, to be important during times of challenge and change. And that, of course, is what we've experienced in the last five years. Global financial crisis, uh, which we're still seeing the fallout from, and we're, we're experiencing the recovery. So today I'm going to cover five items. Uh, first, I'll lay out a simple premise about the causes of the crisis that took hold in 2008. Secondly, I'll briefly walk through the broader economic environment and the high-profile issues that arose. Thirdly, from there I'll highlight why Canada fared better uh, and, and briefly touch on the outlook for Canada. And then I'll bring it back to what happened in the fourth item uh, to what happened at CIBC and how we responded. And finally, I'll try to come up with some wisdom uh, and my thoughts on what can be done to avoid another financial crisis. So, what caused the financial crisis? In my view, um, while there are many connected issues, there were really two key factors. The first was there was excessive indebtedness of both consumers and of governments all around the world. Second, and fueled by government policy and low interest rates, a mania developed uh, around the real estate and housing markets in many countries. But if you were to boil those two items down even further, the thread that ties it all together was greed. Governments were living beyond their means, banks and institutions were pursuing short-term profit over sustainable results, and consumers wanted more than they could realistically afford. So, in fact, it was wholly unsustainable. Uh, and we can see that in hindsight, of course, but at the time, uh, it's always very unclear. So to briefly paint the picture, in mid to late 2007, issues began to emerge. There were large losses by some of the big U.S. investment banks related to subprime exposure. These first write-downs were like a canary in the coal mine. From there, unease began to build around the global mortgage and credit markets, heightening as many banks announced related losses. So the global credit crunch began to deepen, and CEOs from big banks like Merrill Lynch and Citigroup resigned over losses related to subprime debt. So I arrived uh, at CIBC in early 2008. The signs of trouble were already clear. And by then, the U.S. government started to take a much more active and forceful role. It took a key control of, uh, of important institutions like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. It also took stakes in some banks. And that's the first time since the Great Depression of the 1930s that the government uh, had taken ownership of private and commercial banks in the United States. The Fed engineered uh, J.P. Morgan's acquisition of Bear Stearns as it collapsed. Uh, and this is sort of like a bad movie as you walk through 2008, um, as this was happening around us. That transaction has, has ultimately, um, uh, uh, well, sorry, it also played a key role in Bank of America's acquisition of Merrill Lynch. That transaction became disastrous for Bank of America and its shareholders in hindsight. And then by the time Lehman went bankrupt in September of 2008, the writing was truly on the wall. The, what, the fall of Lehman spread fear throughout the markets. The fear was evident in the following weeks when the U.S. Congress failed to pass the $700 billion plan to buy toxic assets from financial institutions in a program called TARP. On that, the day the TARP 
program was uh, voted down, the Dow fell 7%. It had plummeted a full 18% by the end of the week when Congress passed the program. <coughs> but the week that um, Lehman collapsed was really pivotal, pivotal to the crisis. Until that week, the banks managed alone. Each individual bank had to have its own plan on how to manage in the crisis. And we had plans at CIBC on how to handle Lehman collapse. But we knew that others would be fall behind it. And we're surprised how fast things changed during that week. Merrill Lynch was bought by Bank of America. AIG was bailed out by the US government. Government leaders came out and said that no systematically important bank would be allowed to fail. That was a very important statement. And central banks moved to inject liquidity. The crisis changed completely in that week. Now we faced not, we faced the crisis together with other banks and with the central banks and governments. Uh, and we're now into more of a reconstruction phase, which was while it was going to be very difficult it brought an order to what was a very chaotic situation. So in the face of this, now the damage was not done, the damage continued to be done. Uh, the Dow was down, by year end, the Dow was down 34%, steepest decline since 1931. The S&P 500 was down 40%, worst drop since 37. The Stock Exchange in Canada was down 35%, the same, the worst since 2000, or sorry, since 1931. And 25 banks had failed by the end of uh, December uh, in North America. So what about Canada in this whole time? Uh, Canada was not, un unlike uh, some, some of the press, uh, our own press clippings uh, that we like to put out, Canada was not unscathed by the financial crisis. Uh, and, and, you know, and one of the reasons is because uh, there's a famous saying in Canada that when the U.S. sneezes, Canada catches a cold. Uh, you know, three-quarters of our exports in Canada go to the United States. Our economy is closely bound to our neighbor in the south. And more than that, um, I think the global economy has tied our national economies together more and more closely, including through uh, the business we all do uh, with China. So in Canada, while the recession wasn't as severe as seen elsewhere, it did take hold very quickly. And over the first nine months of the slowdown, Canada's GDP declined 3.3%. Our exports dropped dramatically by 16%. And there was a 22% drop in investment spending as people began to sit in the sidelines waiting for this to end. Um, but then we also recovered more quickly. Uh, this is in large part because there were certain measures that were taken that were well coordinated. And there was more room to maneuver in Canada than in some other countries to respond to the crisis and its aftershocks. We had had, I think, up until 2008, I think seven or eight years of annual surpluses in our government budget. And that's the kind of maneuvering room that many other countries did not have when the crisis hit. The dialogue was very open. Uh, Professor mentioned Governor Carney. Governor Carney, uh, I would say, orchestrated a lot of the dialogue. Um, all the parties were highly engaged and thoughtful in their appropriate <coughs> actions. Uh, and of course, the Bank of Canada also injected significant liquidity into, this, into, the, into the system 
which, all, which was a coordinated plan by all the central banks of the G, G8 countries, G10 countries. But Canada also had strong underlying fundamentals. Household and, and government balance sheets were, were relatively strong. Governments were able to inject more than a percentage point a year in, in, in new spending to support growth and recovery. Household consumption dropped by less than half percent. Uh, um, and interestingly, well, household indebtedness was, can was lower in Canada than the U.S. and the U.K. in 2008. In recent years, it's been climbing in Canada. So uh, the consumer was part of the reason that the recession was less deep in Canada. Now that, has that is potentially a cause for concern going forward. Uh, further, we had a very stable real estate market. So this is one of the fundamental differences. The real estate market in Canada is different. Uh, it didn't see the same mania take over. Uh, it has a different mortgage uh, debt structure. Uh, and it did not um, melt down like it did in many countries, including the United States. So what happened to CIBC during the crisis? Um, well, we had, it was not, again, we were not unscathed any more than Canada was unscathed. By the end of 07, we had notional exposure of $35 billion in U.S. Uh, and non-U.S. residential mortgages. So this was, some of it was the subprime, which you would have heard about when you read about the, cri the crisis. And over the course of 2008, we had to take write-downs of, of over $7 billion. $7 billion is a lot of money. Um, but uh, CIBC had taken a course of action led by our CEO, who actually happens to be here at the front row today keeping an eye on me, um, Jerry McCaughey. Uh, significant action. There was new leaders were put in place. I was one of those new leaders who was brought in in 2008. Um, a new CFO came on board. And we t and we appointed we moved our CFO over to become the new CRO, Chief Risk Officer. But we also did many other things, really very substantial. Got we decided we're going to sell, get rid of all of that toxic residential U.S. Uh, real estate securities that we had. Uh, we canceled our stock buyback, which was very popular with investors. And more importantly, we issued. $2.9 billion of equity in January of 2008. So this was before all these other bad things that happened in the marketplace. Uh, CIBC went out and raised close to $3 billion in new equities, which would fundamentally offset the, uh, the losses that we were taking in the uh, structure in the, uh, that I just mentioned, because of course there's tax deductions that are available uh, when you take losses. So the new capital fundamentally uh, main, uh, held our position in, in our total capital structure intact. Uh, we extended the term of our debt financing uh, and we also reduced our funding needs. We started to cut our balance sheet quite dramatically uh, so that we wouldn't need as much funding. Because the reason companies go out of business usually isn't losses or lack of capital. It's usually they run out of cash. And so what you want to do is you want to preserve your cash. So coming into CIBC uh, at this time, my priority was to de-risk our wholesale bank, so our investment bank. That was what I came in to do. We focused on five key areas to accomplish this. We divested or exited and realigned businesses with an idea of creating a franchise that would generate recurring and sustainable revenue as opposed to one-off proprietary revenue. 
We exited our U.S. investment banking at a very fortuitous time. Um, we saw the U.S. market as did not represent an opportunity for us in investment banking, and so we got out of that business, sold our business. Um, we split. We we separated our investment banking away from our corporate banking, so the granting of credit to the people who do advisory, because we wanted to have a stronger credit team uh, examining the lending that we were doing, and no longer thought it was appropriate to have it linked with investment with our investment bankers. We enhanced our focus on clients because our client client business is inherently less risky. Uh, we, we invested, we started to make investments in areas that clients felt were important, including new electronic trading uh, uh, initiatives that have made us a leader in electronic trading in Canada. Uh, we also ensured that we were using our resources thoughtfully, so you no longer could do trades that would just make you a 1% you know, return on capital or a simple small profit. You actually had to generate sufficient return so that you could meet hurdle rates that were attractive to your shareholders. So this was the beginning of the change in thinking that has gone on in many investment banks now of what kind of business is appropriate for an investment bank to do and what kind is not appropriate to do. And finally, we're very focused on people. With the new strategy in place, we put in new business leaders. Many of them came from London, actually. So we benefited from the problems that some of the banks were having in London and, and, and hired people to come and work with us in Toronto and here in London. Uh, we did that uh, around the world. The result, we ended up with great branch strength across our businesses. And because of CIBC's and Canada's broader response, we fared pretty well coming out of the crisis. Pretty proud of the work we did and the progress we've made at CIBC within our capital markets business. We now have a client-focused business that's has very high quality earnings, um, very consistent and sustainable. They don't go up and down like a yo-yo. Our profits are growing. Uh, we've improved our employee satisfaction. Uh, and then we've got a very strong platform to grow in the future. So as the professor said, uh, we were ranked again. So this is, I think, the second year in a row as the strongest bank in North America and the third strongest in the world. So you can see in a period from 08, where it was just a tragedy, the crisis, to today, a very fast turnaround for CIBC uh, and also for Canada. But I think, you know, it wasn't just luck, although I think luck always plays a role in everything in life, uh, but I think it was a decisive action that was taken at the time, and I think it was supported by a solid Canadian tailwind. We were able to prepare, uh, be prepared for developments that would happen in the financial crisis that we couldn't predict. We couldn't predict the ongoing European debt crisis and the fiscal uncertainties that are happening even as we speak today in the United States. Um, but, but the other things we saw were opportunities. Uh, the, the retreat of banks from North America and other parts of the world, particularly European banks, has created an opportunity for those with resources to compete for their clients' business. And Canada is not the only Canadian bank that's fared well coming out of the crisis, or CIBC is not the only Canadian bank that's fared well. Many other of the Canadian banks have taken opportunities to make strategic acquisitions at attractive prices, particularly in the United States. As a result of the strong underlying fundamentals, fundamentals and actions taken, um, Canadian banks have actually been ranked the soundest in the world by the World Economic Forum for six straight years. 
So that's the banking industry. What about the rest of Canada? Uh, looking ahead, the future for Canada is very bright. And for those of you that like to come and work in Canada, I'm sure we'd be happy to have you. Uh, this is in large part because of the deep and significant natural resources that are in Canada. And Canada's prosperity has always been closely tied to the ability to create value from the natural resources. This was true a century ago and it's still true today. Um, the economic impact of the natural resources in Canada is very large. Uh, our resource sectors generate approximately 15% of Canada's total uh, nominal gross domestic product. And together our three key natural resources sectors, energy, mining and forestry, correctly employ about 750,000 people. They account for roughly one half of Canada's exports and attracted over 105, in 20, 2011 attracted over $105 billion in new capital investment. Um, so if you think about what's going on in Canada and, and, and where Canada sits in the world, we have the things that people want to buy. Canada has 10% of the world's forests. Uh, half of Canada is covered in forests, uh, and we harvest less than 1% of the of a forest every year, and, and that 1% is then replanted. And usually they plant 10 for 1 when they're planting trees. Um, it, it got hurt very badly in the crisis because everybody stopped building houses. We opened up some new markets in Asia, and that market has recovered in the last two years, both in the United States and is strengthened in Asia. Um, we're one of the world's leading mining countries, more than 60 different minerals and metals, uh, leading producer of potash globally, uh, and we, we rank in the top five uh, for uranium, nickel, diamonds, and many others. Uh, the mines are right across Canada, most of them are in British Columbia on the west, but they also are in Newfoundland and Labrador on the east. Um, and the most important ish, uh, issue for the sake for the near-term future is the energy sector. The opportunities are being created by innovation and uh, there is some controversy on, on it but uh, what I have found is when people want oil and they need oil, usually they produce oil. So Canada ranks third in the world in proven oil reserves behind Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. And Canada's current oil production is about 3.3 million barrels per day. Uh, if the existing slate of proposed infrastructure proceed as planned, the production could increase by another 2 million barrels a day uh, up to uh, 5.3 million barrels per day within the next 10 years. And if you want, in Canada, because there is so much oil, um, particularly in Canada's oil sands, you could double current production uh, to more than 6 million barrels a day by 2030. So we have significant uh, oil, but we also have significant natural gas. Canada currently ranks third in natural gas production. So you've heard about shale oil, shale gas. You've heard about fracking. These are the con some of the controversial topics. Uh, those are all part of what's going on in the development of new gas resources in uh, Canada and throughout uh, North America and, and really throughout the world. Uh, what we, we will see is natural gas in Canada will be shipped not only throughout North America in the future but also converted to liquid form and then uh, provide international energy markets with a new source of energy. 
and that will be transported around the world probably for the next century. And in renewable energy, Canada is the world's third largest producer of hydroelectricity. Uh, we have more than 500 hydroelectric stations across the country generating 350 million megawatts of electricity. And these are right across the country from Newfoundland to Quebec uh, into uh, Ontario, Man uh, Manitoba, and right through uh, into British Columbia. So hydroelectric plays an important role in, in uh, Canada's energy future. Um, so supported by our, our rich natural resources and, and relatively quick recovery from the crisis, Canada is on track to balance its federal budget, government budget, by 2015. So if we make it in 2015, that would make us probably the only G20 country to have a balanced budget. Um, and of course, it wasn't the last time it was balanced was prior to the crisis. So, stepping back from CIBC in Canada and asking what can be done in the future to avoid another crisis is a very important question and one that many have weighed into. The prevailing wisdom is that regulation is the answer. And there's certainly a lot more regulation coming our way in, in the banking industry. The regulation will require banks to have more capital on hand and to have more liquidity on hand. And the biggest and brightest of the banks will adapt and they'll find ways to compete and offer innovative solutions to their clients and they're going to prosper. I have no doubt about it. But many, some banks may not be able to compete in that world. So I would expect to see further consolidation in the industry in the years ahead. At CIBC, we're embracing the new regulatory environment and believe there's going to be long-lasting competitive advantages in doing so. But regulation alone isn't going to prevent future financial crises, and it can only be part of the answer. Because it seems like every four or five years there's a financial crisis. Uh, 97, 98, it was Asia, Russia, the Russian flu, they called it. In the late 90s, it was the dot com crash. In um, the debt and currency crisis in 2001 and 2002 in Latin America, and more recently, the European debt crisis. The next, next crisis could come from anywhere. Um, I, I would point out that shadow banking is a concern of many, uh, the non-regulated banking sector. But also I think there's a looming pension crisis on the horizon with, uh, due to uh, doing a number of factors including low interest rates. So what can we do to better manage and perhaps reduce the severity of crises like these? I'm going to start by saying something that should not be a surprise to you given my career. I do believe in free enterprise and capitalism. So I believe companies should have the right to succeed and to be rewarded. But they should also have a right to fail and pay the price of failure. So as a result, I would argue that there should be no such thing as being too big to fail. Um, if we take away the possibility of failure, companies don't have the same incentives to compete and manage for downside risk. So I think uh, regulations like the living wills that are required under regulations like the Dodd-Frank in the United States and others in Canada and, and in the UK are going to be very helpful in this regard. What they do is say that if a company fails, if a bank fails, here's how you unwind the bank, here's how you sell off the bank. That's consistent with 
having an ability to fail. So planning, leadership, and good corporate governance are also important. Um, planning will lay the groundwork for success and build commitment to common goals, broad disciplines, and how companies operate and can avoid future disasters. So next I believe there's a role for investment banks to play in ensuring that we operate in a safe and sound manner with their clients' best interests at heart. So I would say that perhaps in the past that wasn't always the case. Leaders must build cultures that value and reward sustainable success and long-term value creation. And by this I mean leadership for the sake of the broader good of clients, markets, and the economy as a whole. And it's really instructive to learn from those who did not act in this way in the past. So finally, I'm going to close with a message for those of you that are at the outset of your career. I think most of you in this room are. Uh, as future leaders, it'll be up to you to avoid future crises. In my time at CIBC, my goal has always been to hand the bank over to the next generation in even better shape than it is today. And it's going to be your turn next. So you're getting a good education here. You're developing skills that will help guard against these type of issues. And chief among those are strong quantitative skills, critical thinking, leadership, and of course accountability. It's also important to be learn to be unafraid of change, no matter how sizable those changes may be. When you see change coming, prepare for it early and adapt before you are forced to. And so with that, I'd like to turn it over to uh, the chair and open it up for a few questions. Excellent. First, thank you, speaker. Well, thank you so much. Um, not the students at LSE, they always think that the best thing that can happen to them is getting a job in the city, but now they may want to go to Canada. <laughs> so, we have microphones? Yeah. So, wait till we have the microphone. Ideally, we combine a couple of questions. So, is it? Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, the, the banking industry in Canada is relatively concentrated. Um, do you think that helped in terms of the response to the financial crisis or did it hinder? And is it a strength or weakness for Canada in the future? Yeah. Well, certainly um, it is concentrated. There's, there's five large banks and then another bank that's also relatively large. Um, there's, there's pluses and minuses. The, one of the pluses is, much like the city here, everyone knows everybody else. And you're able to actually get together very quickly and talk about you know, uh, coordinated action. Um, the uh, regulators are you know, very close by. Um, we see them almost every day now. Um, but you know, they're always available. Uh, and so I think, I think it turned out to be a benefit. Um, it could, of course, if all the banks are doing the same thing, it could be a negative as well. Uh, turned out that wasn't the case. So I think, I think partly the structure of the industry did help. Um, the, uh, the, uh, but some of the other factors, the structure of our mortgage market really made a big difference. And the fact that the mortgage market didn't collapse like it did in the United States or um, Ireland, for example. Thanks. Thanks very much. I was wondering if I could 
ask you to elaborate a little bit on something that you made a reference to uh, early on, which is the rise in consumer debt and the, the housing market. And yeah. obviously, consumption was a big reason why Canada had a, a, good, a good recession or a good crisis. But how, it, with Canada having to shift over to new drivers of growth, as the Bank of Canada um, yeah. has, has stressed in recent speeches, how does that affect you and you at CIBC, and how how are you positioning for a world in which, at a, at the best rate, um, how the, you know debt household debt can't grow at the pace it's been growing? Yeah, good point. I, I, I'll, I'll deal with the macro and the micro CIBC response. Uh, uh, there's no question our uh, debt levels have gone up in Canada, and, and what's driving this, of course, is the very low interest rates. Like you know, if you can rent a uh, an apartment at one price, or you can buy it and pay lower monthly fees, most people are going to go buy it. Right? The price signals are telling people to borrow more money. And this is what uh, could be one of those seeds of a future crisis, of course. Um, so many people in banking would prefer the interest rates to go up as a natural um, a natural response, you know, response to what's going on in the economy. You know, supply and demand. That you know, if there's a lot more demand, there should be less. There should be uh, less supply, or supply must come at a higher price. So, so I think that it is cause for concern. So, um, but as long as the uh, employment picture stays good in Canada, uh, then it should not be an undue cause for concern. Uh, I know that seems to be one of the favorite topics of investors here in Europe about what's the Canadian <coughs> housing market. Uh, and they're building a lot of buildings in uh, Toronto. But the other thing that's offsetting that is the U.S. Is, is rebounding. If the U.S. rebounds, that will dramatically offset the, um, well, will sort of reinforce the employment picture in Canada and be an offset to any negatives caused by a consumer slowdown. Uh, the federal government also has taken a number of steps recently to slow down the mortgage market. They've shortened the amortization periods, they've reduced the amount of mortgage insurance available, so they're taking a number of non-interest rate steps to slow down the mortgage market. So I think all told, we're not expecting a significant issue in Canada. What CIBC has done is actually go further than that We've actually deliberately decided to reduce our mortgage lending, and what we've eliminated our uh, utilizing the uh, what's called the broker market, which is lending through brokers as opposed to people who come into the branch and take out a mortgage. We still want to lend as much as we can through to branch clients, but we're not going to buy broker mortgages from brokers anymore. Uh, secondly, we've actually reduced the amount of credit card debt that we're going to have on our balance sheet. Uh, that for clients that don't have other products at CIBC. So what we really want are people who have many products at CIBC and we're actually going to have less credit card debt outstanding next year as, uh, in, uh, for clients who do not have other products at CIBC. So we're going to deliberately reduce our mortgage lending and deliberately reduce our credit card lending. And that sort of um, is the prudence that I was talking about that we're not going to rely on a, a growing U.S. market to bail us out of a problem. We're, we're just not going to have a problem at CIBC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? 
Um, you mentioned earlier there are a number of financial institutions that are going to a consolidated model and where they're focusing only on certain segments. Uh, However, on the other hand, there are certain institutions which are still following the global bank model, trying to cater all products in all regions. In right. Deutsche Bank being one of them. Uh, what is your view on the what should be the right model, if there is any? Uh, yeah. And yeah. Well, I think I think the. Uh one thing the crisis has told us that any model is subject to going wrong, um, and that you know poor management will uh, will certainly trump the model any day if you if you uh, don't manage your business well. Um, I, I think there's going to be a variety of different models. I think, un unlike what I might have said ten years ago, where bigger would be better, right, and global would be better, I would say that doesn't apply anymore. And I don't think, by the way, governments are going to let banks grow on, on an unlimited basis anymore. If you think about the, the, uh, what happened in countries like Iceland, with the size of their banks relative to the size of the country, it's just unsustainable. So I think countries are going to have to decide how big their banks can actually be. And that will be a different answer in every country. Um, so I think there will be different models. I think that uh, we've decided to... Uh, 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 focus on being strong in Canada and, and focusing on three sectors outside of Canada, energy, mining, and infrastructure. That's what we know as Canadians and that's what we're good at. So we're going to be very specific. We're going to be, you know, we are all over the world today, but we're not going to try to be everything there to everybody. Um, that works for us. Uh, you will still have banks like Deutsche Bank that will want to be, you know, very global. Um, but most of, the, most of those banks that had those global aspirations like UBS and, and, and several others, there's no way they're going back to that. There's no way their, their national government is going to allow them to do that anymore. Because when the, when the problems happened at UBS, it was almost beyond the capacity of the Swiss government to deal with it. Uh, it's very good you just mentioned that because I'm Swiss and obviously banking is a really big issue in the country. And um, I worked at Credit Swiss over the summer and one thing that we very often heard or one idea of how to um, protecting eventually the savings of people in banks would be the splitting of the investment bank and the private bank. Um, what do you think about that idea in general? Because there are proponents of that idea of making that a law, for example. Yeah, um, that's the sort of so-called Glass-Steagall approach that the United States used to have, where investment banks could not be owned by uh, commercial banks. Uh, and you know, we used to have a similar structure in Canada up until uh, I guess the 1980s. Uh, I think it's a very simplistic solution. Um, I do have some sympathy for the idea that you should not be using government-insured deposits to finance wholesale banking activities. Um, and um, because uh, that is actually a, that, that, that deposit insurance is really should be directed at the client, the depositor, not at being used to advantage, you know, proprietary trading over on the wholesale banking side. So I'm a, I do believe that that's a correct public policy view. But I think the idea of splitting uh, investment banking activities from commercial banks is actually something, it's one of those discussions, sort of a, what do you call a parlor discussion. You can talk about it all you want, but it isn't going to happen. Because clients want a full, a full uh, uh, suite of products delivered to them. They want to be able to buy foreign exchange. They want to be able to buy gold coins. They want to be able to buy stocks and bonds. 
They want to be able to make deposits and write checks. It all, they want to do it at their financial institution that they trust. And, and, and a well-managed financial institution should not have a problem doing that. So I don't think it's a realistic, you know, I don't think you can turn the clock back uh, realistically. Um, maybe certain jurisdictions will try to do it, but I, I don't think it, I don't think that was the cause of the problems that we had in the crisis. Uh, I mean, so, Isn't the problem really the excessive trading with derivatives, which I'm from Vancouver uh, and a professor, uh, and I don't see that in the Canadian banks. You see it in Goldman Sachs and, you know, in the U.S., but you don't see it so much in Canada. The Canadian banks do all the things you say, but none of them involve huge amounts of risk for the bank. Like, well, uh, like other places. Right. So, so Goldman Sachs is a very unique institution. Well, not only them. I mean, as, a, as an example, yeah. the, the different types of places. Yeah. You're right. In the commercial banks, in Canada, and uh, I would say generally in commercial banks in the UK and, else, and elsewhere, wholesale is a smaller part of the bank. Derivatives trading is a smaller part of the bank. Uh, it tends to be done, to, like, for example, at CIBC, we only do derivatives to support client business for clients who want to trade derivatives. Clients want to trade derivatives. They do. They want, to, they want to hedge their risk. That's what we do for them. We don't do proprietary trading of derivatives, though. And uh, there were a lot of issues in the proprietary trading of derivatives. And what's happening, the primary regulatory fix on that is to force those derivatives onto central clearing uh, agencies so that the central banks and the other regulators can actually see what's going on. So as a result now, if we clear, if we do a trade with any uh, uh, bank on a U.S. product, uh, we are required by law to clear that trade on an eligible clearing uh, agency. The one we use is London Clearinghouse. And so we're required by law, so there's 100% of the time we clear that way. And ultimately, I think over, let's say, a decade, it's going to take a long time. Most of the trading will move in derivatives, move to central clearing uh, agencies. Uh, there'll be lots more visibility. Um, and, and you're going to be penalized from a capital basis for not doing that and for doing very complex products. So I think that regulation, you know, for our perspective, is going in the right direction. It won't suit everybody. But you're right, derivatives, um, the ability to take, you know, Warren Buffett said derivatives were the financial equivalent of uh, yeah, mass destruction. Yeah, I know, he, he uses them all the time. He's great like that. But, um, but in fact, the, the issue with derivatives is you can leverage up the risk to a multiple of what the risk would be if you were just taking it into cash markets. And if you don't treat that risk with respect, it can it can be very damaging to a, to an institution. So I have to go with the chair. I have to go with the chair. Uh, hello, thanks for your presentation. You just mentioned uh, the theory of or the idea of uh, too big to fail, and you said uh, uh, we should let the companies or the banks to fail. But actually, when a bank fails, who really fail? Uh, are the are they the bankers or are they the depositors? I mean, the, uh, the structure or uh, how, uh, how banks work now in a current, uh, in a mod uh, modern system. Uh, like they take the, uh, uh, the short-term deposit 
which depositors can demand any time, but they give loans in long term. And this is a fundamental or structural, uh, let's say, problem or weakness of the banking system. And also the uh, fractional reserving system, uh, which, we, which uh, the banks are using now, uh, uh, allow uh, banks to create money basically out of air, out of nothing. Um, do you see this is one of the reasons to, uh, which created the financial crisis? And do you see the possibilities or trend of this structural change of the banking industry in the future? Yeah. Well, there's many, you asked many questions there. Uh, so I'll start with the too big to fail. Um, look, what you find out as you go through your career, and you know, I, I'm, what, 30 years since I was here at LSC, you find out that the idea that you could have a regulatory environment which would precisely prevent any problem that could ever happen in the future is just not realistic. It's just not going to happen. There's going to be a crisis that none of us expected. And what you want to do is have your uh, regulatory environment set to handle even that. And what that means is sometimes banks will fail, right? And therefore you have to have a regime that will unwind that bank in an appropriate way. The customers though, the clients, the retail clients in, nor in most industrialized countries are insured by the federal government. So they would be protected. Not everybody would be protected. Preferred shareholders wouldn't be protected. Uh, capital providers to the banks would not be protected. Uh, they would lose their money. Just as any corporation that, that, that exists in any uh, uh, industrialized society, when it goes bankrupt, the, there's, a, there's an order of priority in terms of how you liquidate. So the retail customers need to be protected by insurance, and we can't predict exactly what's going to happen in the future, and banks will fail. And the question is, how are we going to deal with that? Are we going to prop them up? The propping them up will make certain banks take more risk, is what I'm saying. They need to know they will not be propped up. Yeah, um, you know, I think we should perhaps you that off the banks a little bit too lightly. Thank you. Um, <coughs> ordinary people at the moment are suffering because of the after effects of this crisis, many of whom never got the benefits of the lead up to the events of 2008. Let me sharpen the question. This school lost a director in 2012 for a fairly tangential relationship to a political crisis in Libya. It seems to me that most of the people that pulled into the crisis, politicians and bankers in 2008, are still there. Should anybody have gone to jail and have the incentive structures really changed? Um, <laughs> the... Um, have they changed? I think they have actually changed quite a bit. You know, they've put in uh, much more controls on bonuses within banks. Maybe not as far as people, some people would like, but today you're, there are actually a lot of regulations on how much you can pay a person and how you can pay a person. They're actually very aggressive here in the UK. Um, your bonuses, you used to get your bonuses every, uh, at the end of every year, you just get it in cash and then you can do whatever you wanted with it. Now. Uh, half my bonus is deferred for many years. And what we've also done in, in, in many, most of the countries now is we put in what's called a clawback. So a clawback says that if you cause a loss at your bank in the future, um, the bank can claw back your bonuses that were given to you in the past. In other words, they can break, take your money back. That didn't exist in 2008. And there was a lot of examples in 2008 where we would have loved to have clawed back people's 
uh, bonuses, and I'm sure they were at UBS and, and a few other places too. But you couldn't do it because legally you had no entitlement to do that. So, um, so I think that there have been some changes in that front done. Uh, you know, the, you know, justice, I don't know, right? Uh, what about honor? How have resigned at the point of honor? How come not yeah. the people at the box of the bank resigned? I, you know, I, you know, I, I'm going to avoid that question to say, <laughs> where were the boards? Where were the boards at this time? Like the boards, you know, have a responsibility to govern. They choose the CEO, and they have a, a responsibility to govern. You know, how is it that, and the one I always use is, how is it that Ken Lewis was allowed to buy Merrill Lynch just because on a whim, on a whim, no plan, nothing. He just bought it, destroyed the bank, right? Fundamentally, of course, he was drummed out eventually. Uh, but the damage is long term, as you say. So I think this is a governance issue and a governance failure. Um, I don't know that stricter laws and sterner laws, you know, you do see these laws cropping up in the United States. They like to put people in jail. Uh, generally not the rest of the world's solution to these problems. So I think it's a governance failure. Uh, why, were they, why were certain CEOs allowed to do the things they were allowed to do? I remember when uh, Royal Bank of Scotland bought ABN AMRO, like the entire investment banking industry said this would be a problem because of the price they paid. Everybody knew it would be a problem, yet they did it anyway. Uh, there was no logical basis on which they paid that price. It was some form of ego-driven transaction. Don't know. It was kind of the final transaction that was done. So. So it's not just an American phenomena, it's a global phenomena, uh, and I don't know um, what the answer to that is, uh, but I think it is, I think it's more in the line of what's the governance, right? We, there's this debate still going on, I was having it earlier today, should the chairman and CEO be the same person? Uh, unequivocally I say no, they should not be. Everybody needs a boss, and the only way a CEO can have a boss is the board, and the chair represents the board. We did that in Canada, Jerry, 10 years ago, right? It's very common in the UK. In the United States, 50% of the public companies still have chairman and CEO as the same person, including the banks. So I would look to the governance as actually one of the most important areas uh, for more fundamental reform of the way banks are, are run. Same with, I would say the same thing for car companies as well. I think we're reaching the end. Yeah, this couple more, two more. How about two, two more? And that will wrap it up. Because you can try. Um, you mentioned that one of uh, CIBC's responses to the crisis was to go and raise additional equity capital, and there was a, uh, a speaker here a couple of months ago, actually, who proposed that as being the way to ensure that more banks don't fail in the future to, to force banks to hold certain leverage ratios, essentially. How do you feel about that? Uh, well, they are today. There are leverage ratio requirements today. Uh, there are going to be in the future. Uh, the question is under Basel, what's called Basel III. Basel III is a new regime for banks. We're a Basel III bank. We comply with all the rules today of Basel III, but some of the new rules are being are in flux, right? So between now and 2015, those rules will all get set, and then we'll know what the rule regime. Um, uh, it's very important that we do have minimum capital standards, and it's important that the standards be applied uniformly across you know the global banks. Uh, what's happening right now, unfortunately, is 
we're back to things are getting a bit better. So now we're having jurisdictional competition. You know, the Canadians will do it one way because we're Boy Scouts. We do it the hardest way. You know, we put the most capital. Um, uh, the Europeans will do it a different way. You know, our banks are weak. We've got to give them a bit of a break. Uh, and then the Americans will laugh at all of us and do their own thing, right? <laughs> uh, and so that's kind of what's starting to happen again, and that's a bad sign. So hopefully people like Mr. Carney and others are able to uh, discipline the system back. We need a uniform standard for banks in Europe, North America, and Asia. And uh, uh, without that, you're going to head back to some of the same behavior as we saw in the past. So. We need to have strong capital rules. We need to have strong liquidity rules. Because remember what I said. You ain't going to go out of business because you run out of capital. You're going to go out of business because you run out of cash. You run on your bank, right? So cash is the most important thing. Um, so, um, and, and regulators are focusing on that as well. Take so. one more question. Thank you, Richard. You have talked about uh, the importance of corporate governance. Could you give us? Could you elaborate on this issue and give us some more concrete, concrete? You just uh, want me to give you examples of bad behavior. That's no, no, no. <laughs> concrete recommendations. I tend to go to people that have been fired and drummed out of the business and lost their uh, knighthood already. You know, when I when I give examples. Um, look, uh, you know, there's so many bad. There's so many examples of bad behavior. It's it, it, just incredible. Um, but, you know, I see, we don't have another model for, in, in, in the Western world for um, governance of a company other than the board. The board is critical. The board has, the board is responsible. Uh, perhaps the board should have more onus put on it uh, in, in some of these uh, decisions and actions. Um, uh, but I don't see an alternative to the board structure. Um, I think that uh, breaking apart the chairman and CEO, I already mentioned that that should be just a minimum condition. Diversity on your board as well is very important. Uh, having the cronies, uh, we all know companies that have like that that have their cronies uh, sitting on the board with them. Uh, that's very common in, in um, certain industries, let's put it that way. Less so in banks, but it, is, it is, does happen. And I think that um, um, you're starting to see, you know, more tests around are the directors qualified to sit on a board. I know here in the UK, I think you have to actually go and be interviewed by the regulator before you're allowed to become a director of a, of a bank. We don't have that today in Canada. They do a fit and proper test to make sure you are, you know, you're not a criminal and all those things. But, um, but the interesting to see how that will work, to see whether that leads to better directors for bank boards, I don't know. Uh, but there's a number of these things that can be tried, and, and the good ones can be kept and the bad ones can be thrown away. Um, but I think that the solution to many of these problems does lie with governance, and the board's going to have to take a much more proactive role. That means, you know, just showing up for four meetings a year is not what it means to be a, a director of a bank. You know, it's almost a full-time job uh, to be a director of a bank. And I think that was the second one. That was the last question. Yeah. So thank you very much. Well. I'd like to thank you all for coming, but um, I mean, especially want to thank our speaker because.
I mean, this is not the easiest day to be a banker. Maybe it's not that tough, but it's not the easiest day to be a banker. But it definitely is not the easiest day to come to LSE and answer questions. So we're very grateful that you came over. Yeah.